On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good pal, Allison Lucan. Allison, what's going on? It's, <laughs> there's a lot going on, isn't there? It's great to be here with you again. Yeah. Well, you know we had to do a big deep dive on the Blue Jackets, uh, considering their offseason so far, considering how they really seem to take control of day one of the draft, and I couldn't think of a better person to do the deep dive with than you. So I'm looking forward to those. There's certainly, we were bouncing around some ideas before we started recording, and, and there's uh, no shortage of topics for us to get into. <laughs> it's funny, you know, you, we were bouncing around ideas. I'm like, and then there's these 10 other things. So <laughs> it's, it was, it was a, it was a very pivotal moment for the franchise. It's going to be really interesting to see how this pans out and how this will look in a few years and in 10 years, even longer potentially. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into all that. I think the natural starting point is the Seth Jones trade and, and we're going to try to deep dive it. I, I spent a lot of time myself, as I'm sure you have uh, thinking about it, if only because I thought that the combination of the player himself, but also um, like the details of, of the transaction that got him there and then will keep him in Chicago for a long time, I presume. Uh, we're such a touchstone moment for player evaluation. The whole weekend was, as I've talked about in the podcast, with the ekman Larson trade and with the Ristolainen trade and how teams seem to value these big name defensemen more, more than we, we may publicly in terms of the metrics we have available to us. Um, but this one really kind of captured all of that in this I don't, it's not even a tidy package, a messy package of just like details and, and everything. So I, I don't know, like, what do you, what do you think the most um, interesting part of the entire discussion about either the player or the trade itself is? Cause there's obviously so many different ways we can kind of enter this conversation. Yeah. You know, and, and I've said this a couple of times, it's been, this has been an interesting period for me because as you know, I'm, I'm an, totally passionate supporter of the public metrics that we have. And I continue to be so, but having watched Seth Jones as much as I have, I do struggle a little bit. Um, I'm not saying that he's completely missed um, in terms of the metrics, but I think we're missing something. And I think that maybe our analytics community could do ourselves a favor when the dust settles to dig in a little more and see if mm -hmm. maybe there were other things that we missed or maybe if we ever get more robust data, if that helps us. So all of that is to say, I've been a little higher on the player continuously than the quote unquote analytics community has been. Now, that being said, when that return came back, <laughs> I was floored, absolutely floored. I think that, and this is not to take anything away from Seth Jones, that was a tremendous overpay by Chicago, particularly given my understanding of where that organization is too. I think that from a strategic perspective, very big risk and not necessarily in the best of ways, in my opinion. 
Yeah. Oh, I certainly, I ultimately, and I think this is almost indisputable. I don't see a, a, a feasible roadmap for the Blackhawks to come out ahead on this transaction, just given the acquisition costs in terms of what they gave to Columbus to facilitate the trade. But then I think even especially when you double down with the magnitude of the extension and, and, and we're going to get into all of the, the business side of the equation. I think I wanted to go over that the on ice performance and the results he's had so far, because that is the more interesting component of this to me. And, and, I think there's a bunch of players in the league uh, for who the perception and status and the numbers don't line up, right? And, and and we have these debates back and forth about them. I think there's very few examples of someone for who they're quite this divergent and also for someone who in their age 26 season, this is happening, right? Like when it happens with an Oliver Ekman Larson where he gets traded, it's like, all right, well, he's 30. He's had a bunch of knee surgeries, uh, the way we understand aging curves, yeah, it seems a bit early for him to fall off the map like this in terms of his on ice results, but I can see it. With Seth Jones, he's obviously logged uh, a ton of miles in terms of the the minutes and he's played for Columbus over the years, but still as a player who just finished his age 26 season, it's weird that this is, and you know, this past year was an aberration in terms of how bad the results got, but it has been kind of tied into this larger conversation we've been having for maybe two, three years now in terms of like slight dips in performance that ultimately culminate in this one. So it's, it's, it's very bizarre for me to just see it playing out in real time like this for, for a player who is only 26 years old, who we think would theoretically be at the prime of his career at this point. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been fascinating to me and, you know, I'll pick on another example of where we've all been like, oh yeah, well this, this divergence makes sense. And that's Jack Johnson, right? Like it was always very easy for us to understand what the quote unquote hockey men saw in him versus what the numbers were telling us versus what people like you and I saw when we watched the game. And, and, you know, the, the little that I've dug into this and I've spoken to people much smarter than me in terms of mathematics and analytics, I do think there's a couple things in play here. You know, he has, Seth Jones has played an exorbitant amount of minutes relative to his colleagues And from what I understand, that potentially could be doing some things with the math. There's also a very interesting variable in Seth Jones games that not many other players have. And that is that I think when I pulled it up last over his career in Columbus, except for his first year, like 85% plus of his minutes were with Zach Wierenski. And so when you have two players tied together that tightly, Again, it's really hard to tease out individual results. And on that pairing, Zach Wierenski was always the offensive power. Seth Jones was always the stay back defensive player. We know that from what our eyes tell us and what the numbers tell us too. So there are some mathematical factors going in that could be playing around with, first of all, the data that we even just have access to, because we don't have access to everything. And then what comes out, um, it, it, again, it's just really hard for me because last season, look, I'm with you. You throw that out the window. Any Blue Jackets player, I'm pretty much like you throw last year out the window. It was an abomination to be quite frank, but I, I don't, I'm really curious to watch numerically, even if nothing changes in our calculations, what happens in Chicago, because this will be one of the first times we'll be able to significantly see Seth Jones in a completely different scenario and see what the numbers bear out. Cause it's just, it's very curious. It is. I think was well, so back in 2017, 18, he finished fourth in Norris voting and I actually thought he, he was spectacular that season. I, I think I, even on my own personal fake ballot, I had him like second or third. Uh, that season. Yep. I forget the details, but it was, it was, it was warranted. It wasn't a, a, a reputation based vote. Like he, he was fantastic that season. And 
then this year, you're right. I think I'm willing to to throw it out just because it's 56 games. Uh, things went off the rails horribly. There was so much turmoil. They were basically playing out the string towards the end. Zach Wierenski was in and out of the lineup and hurt. Like it's there was a confluence of sort of factors out of his control, right? I think the concern for me is that if we throw out last year out the window, it's still been a while since he was that version of, version of his 2017, 18 self, I believe, which now if you're a Blackhawks fan, you're thinking, okay, well, he's going to be what he was in 2018, 19, and even 19, 20, even though there are some red flags in terms of the, the analytics component of it, at least it's, it's still a significant improvement on what we saw last year. So I, I think that's important to keep in mind. I think even as he gets older here, especially for the next couple of years, I do think, we're going to look back at what happened last year as an aberration because I just find it hard to believe that he got that bad at hockey all of a sudden. Cause like it was, it was really bad. I've got some numbers right now here. I don't even know if it's worth getting into because it was, they were all just uniformly catastrophic for the, for the team and for himself individually. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, I know we'll get into this in a bit too. And I think, you know, again, my position is that, the player, a lot of, you know, and, and we love our friends at Evolving Hockey and congratulations to them for being able to do their work full time. Now, that's amazing. Go support their work. Um, but, you know, some of their rankings and ratings that they came out with for Seth Jones, I just felt they're too significantly low. Now, I am not saying he's in the 99th percentile and everything. He certainly is a defense forward player. But, you know, when we get into the business side of this, even Seth Jones at 18, 19, 19, 20 numbers, that contract is insane. You know, when I when I did a thing on on what he potentially could be making, getting to the realm of those numbers was a scenario where we were looking at Columbus making the overpay to retain with some of the reputational issues they've had. That was the only scenario where I saw numbers coming into play like what he got. Now, congratulations to the player. I mean, my goodness gracious, go enjoy. Yeah. But, you know, that too, you know, it's, again, we have two, two things here. What is the actual value of the player? And then what did this team pay? And as you said, both in acquisition cost and contract, I think the player is being undervalued publicly, but that contract and that, tr that acquisition cost were, even if he's really, really, really good too, too, too much by Chicago. Well, so you brought up a point earlier about the, the ice time. I certainly, uh, I'm, I'm with you in the, in the sense that once you start getting into these extremes of ice time, there can be some wonkiness in terms of both the results, but also I'm sure just the psychological element, the fatigue, everything, right? You're wondering whether you're optimizing the player's performance once he gets into those, those crazy ranges. But at the same time, it also seems to kind of get um, lionized or maybe even used as a um, sort of the be all end all in terms of analysis when it's like, well, this defenseman plays a lot of minutes. And, and for me, I think it's more important. Okay. Does that player deserve to be playing those minutes? And is this the most optimal use of them for both themselves and, and the team? You, you know what I mean? Sometimes with these defensemen, it's like, this guy's a 25 minute a game guy. And it's like, well, he's, he played 25 minutes this past season. If we were running the team, I'm not necessarily sure we would be sending him out over the boards for all 25 of those minutes. A hundred percent agree, you know, and I think, and listen, we know Columbus is not huge on a lot of people's radar. And so a lot of people point to the bubble playoffs as, as a coming out party. Eunice Corposalo was tremendous in net. The, everyone talks about the 18,000 overtime game with uh, Tampa Bay. And, you know, again, that's where, to your point, people were saying, look at Seth Jones. He played over an hour. Isn't this amazing? 
And, you know, when people say that to me, they say, you know, that was his coming out party. I'm like, but should it have been? I didn't think it was that great. No. And, and to your point, just as we talk about aging curves, that when you, if you pass that critical point, you're going to be on the downtrend. The same, in my opinion, holds true within the scope of a game. If you push a player past their optimum usage, you're going to get suboptimal results. And I think it's entirely possible that that is a wrinkle in the conversation that we are having about Seth Jones because Columbus rode him hard. They played him a ton. Should he have played less to be better? Who's to say? But I think it's a valid point of conversation. Well, I guess the concerning thing about projecting future performance is I can only imagine that ice time is going to even increase if possible in, 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 valid. in Chicago, just based on what they paid to get him and what's around him. If you look at the depth chart right now, it's like there's going to be some pretty ridiculous ice time totals next season. And I think it's going to get lionized again by people that are like, oh my God, they're getting their bang for their buck. Look at him. He's out there for 32 minutes tonight. And it's like, yeah, they got outshot by an insane margin in those minutes and it wasn't good. And I think we're going to get headed for a lot of that. So uh, if people are already bored by this conversation, boy, you're, <laughs> you're in for an ongoing debate over the next couple of years. Yes, 100% agree. Um, I, okay, so one final thing on his performance that I thought was really fascinating. I'm not sure if, if you saw this. Obviously, you've been uh, seeing this with your own eyes uh, up close on a much more detailed level. But Jack Hahn, a friend of the podcast, uh, had a really interesting breakdown, I thought, in terms of uh, Seth Jones's skating mechanics and how that ties into some of the results we're speaking of. And I thought it was so interesting because when you when you see the player discussed, it's Oh, he's, uh, he's such a good mover, right? Like, and, and certainly in a straight line, North South, uh, movement style, like when he's just carrying the puck up the ice and he's flying through defenders and, and getting straight to the net, it's like, wow, he, yeah, he's a great skater, but there are a lot of red flags in, in terms of his backwards skating stride in terms of maybe, um, how he's overcompensating for not being able to deal with the rush speed. And he's just giving up carry-ins, right? I believe under Corey Schneider's tracking data, he gave up controlled entries on 67% of his entries against last year or something. Now, I wonder how much of that was, uh, you know, system and, and coaching and in terms of what they were being asked to do. And maybe if you let the player free a bit more in terms of being aggressive and taking risks, they could get better results out of that. But that's a, that's another concern for me here. And, and that ties into the, the, the shot metrics, right? It's not necessarily just a, oh, we need the context. Like, this is why you got out shot. It's like, no, this is, we're providing it. The, the skating was an issue. And I wonder, it's weird that for a 26 year old, that would be an issue. So it makes me wonder how much of that was coaching, how much of that was system, how much of that was playing too much, like trying to kind of put all those puzzle pieces together. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't pretend to know the answer there. I think again, though, that this is a valid topic to explore. I think one thing about Seth Jones is his build is such that even when he's maybe not technically sound, he makes very subtle moves that when they provide results, it conveys visually something really confident and strong and accurate, right? Even mm -hmm. if the technical elements that went into it weren't so great, he has that huge wingspan, he has long legs, so he can, you know, he with a stick poke, he can break up a play. Now, to your point on systems, and, you know, again, last year, I kind of throw it out a little bit, but when Columbus was at its best, even two years ago, three years ago, this was a club that gave up quantity and focused on not giving up quality. So, you know, even back when they were stronger, the shot attempts against 
they weren't winning those battles, but they were winning the quality against battles as a team, as a team. Now, Seth Jones still struggled there. No question. But I, you know, again, this is the unique thing of him being paired with Zach Wierenski. So Zach Wierenski was basically told, you're not even a defenseman, you're a rover and you can do whatever. And Seth Jones, I think really, anytime I spoke with him, and he was always positive and welcoming of it, but he had very specific priorities in how he played because he knew how Zach was going to play. And he wanted Zach to play that way. So I do think there's some system elements to it. And I do think that after the departure of Artemi Panarin, when the Blue Jackets offense wasn't as potent, they didn't have as much of a threat and the support that defenders were supposed to be getting from their forwards on the back check and the forecheck was not as strong. It weakened neutral zone coverage. And I think to the point of entries against um, and transitional play, I think that, of course, impacts the defenseman. And now we come full circle again. If you're out there the majority of the time and your team is giving up travel through the neutral zone and giving up entries against and you're out there the majority of the time and your D partner is already up in the rush, a lot of those entries against are going to come against you. Yeah. Well, that's what makes the the, the fit in terms of figuring what next year is going to look like for both him and, and the Blackhawks. So interesting to me because there's there's such a, a night and day team in terms of the way they play, maybe by necessity, just because the personnel they had in the past two years, as opposed to what Seth Jones is coming from in Columbus, where there's such a rush-based attack, but also they just they're like, all right, screw it. Whatever happens defensively happens. We're going to give up a lot of goals. And, and, and certainly uh, as a team, team-based results, they haven't been there as such, but um, he's going to have much more, I think, freedom to, to get involved and carry the puck and join the rush than he, than he had in the past. And so I, I'm willing to believe that his offensive results are going to look better, but ooh, the, the, the defensive numbers, I don't, I don't yeah. imagine are going to get too much better than they've been given the, uh, the change of circumstances even there. Yeah. And I, you know, again, you know, some of the things that, that he would say to me that I was referencing earlier is he'd say things, well, you know, my first job is to defend. So there's a double risk here too, is that if he's playing in that Chicago system and it comes out the way we're talking about, there's a version of Seth Jones and I've not spoken to him since the trade, but there's a version of Seth Jones that says, holy crap, I've got to be even more defensive to make up for all because that's how he's built. Yep. And now we're in an even worse <laughs> situation um, right. because if he doesn't allow himself the freedom to jump because he feels that defensive responsibility, now, we, now we're even mm, grimacing a little bit more. <laughs> well, and, and so let's get into the, the, the details of the trade now. I think we've, we've covered the, the player. So the contract kicks in when he turns 28. Uh, expires in the summer of 2030, which seems like uh, a fake number. (laughs) I push back against the concept of the year 2030 existing. It seems untenable at this point, but we'll we'll see how it goes. But he can't even really be bought out in the meantime, right? Like he, I think 40.25 million of the 76 million is tied up in signing bonuses. And I guess maybe like down in the final couple of years after they pay one of those last huge signing bonuses, they could flip him to an Arizona or whoever at the time is, is taking on uh, big contracts for assets. But there's even like, I think there's 5 million in signing bonuses in the final, each of the final two years of the deal. And I imagine some of those cash startup teams won't be lining up to take that and pay that bill as well. And so that's why I said at the start, it's like, it's, this is going to be a really long-term uh, relationship between the two and, it, and it's up to them to figure it out. I, I thought what the, the cap is 9.5 million in terms of when it kicks in, I believe for the deal. Yeah. 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 
which will make him the third highest paid defenseman behind Eric Carlson and Drew Doughty at that time, starting in 22-23, assuming no one else gets paid more uh, in the in the meantime. And I, each of those players, their extensions kicked in, I think, when they were closer to 30. Um, and they had it, well, in Carlson's case, like you could point to the injuries, the lower body injuries that caused the dip in performance. But it's amazing to see how, like, both those contracts are already considered to be quite onerous and and uh, limiting the teams in terms of financial flexibility. And we're still like two years out from that even becoming the reality for Chicago. And they've just willingly signed up for it. I, I think that's the, that's the part I'm struggling with. I don't know if, if you feel this way, but it seems like it was Dallas or Chicago in terms of places that he would extend, right? And Dallas, based on the price, quickly uh, bowed out and, and thanked uh, Columbus for their time. So... I'm struggling to figure out why Chicago then felt the need to also pay a premium to acquire him considering Columbus was going to move him. And there was literally one place that they could move him to for anything resembling this price. You know, and that's, again, that's what makes the, the deal so impressive from a Columbus perspective is they didn't have a ton of leverage. Everyone knew the player wanted out. It had been reported nationally and locally that he had a two to three team list that he was willing to even consider talking long term. I mean, if this isn't the ultimate example of that free agency silly season, because, you know, and the other thing I look at, too, and, you know, it's not the same term, of course, but we've already seen we've already learned the lessons of when you have so much money tied up in a few players, Yep. And you've still got Taze, you've still got Kane. Now you're going to have this Seth Jones contract kick in for a little bit of overlap. There's not, and we know, we know that for the next few years, we're not looking at a normal cap inflation scenario. Yep. We're looking at a fairly flat cap. To, to consider this sound cap management, I don't care who the player is, to tie up that much salary in three guys is such a tremendous risk for me because we've seen the impacts of that already in Chicago of what you're able to retain, who you end up having to move because you don't have the money. I just, it's, I don't, under, I, the, when a first, first round pick came back, I was like, that's, that's good. When you had a player, a, a secondary pick and a first round pick, I was like, that's fine. And then you start to hear there's a second first round pick. Whew. I mean, I was floored. Absolutely yeah, floored. Top two protected only. And, and I think uh, there's reason to believe it's going to be, again, a top 10 pick or, or top 12 or whatever they got this year from them. And so, yeah, it was quite a price. I, I, I was struggling to understand the, the rationale behind Future Chicago playing, paying a premium to both acquire him and then extend him. It's like, it feels like one of those two should come at a cheaper price uh, because I don't understand you're debating against themselves. Let me tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, which is a program created to give everyone the opportunity to take their own podcast to the next level. Whether you've already got your own show and just need a little professional boost to get over the top, or you've listened to this podcast in the past and had a bunch of thoughts and always dreamed of starting your own show but just didn't know where to begin, Blue Wire Hustle's for you. Here's some of the perks that you're going to get. You're going to receive a personal cover art. You're going to receive Q&As available to you with Blue Wire's top podcasters. You're going to get access to our community Discord, and you're going to get an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. Plus, they'll help you get your show out there on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else people listen to our podcasts. You'll get all of that for a flat rate of $15 per month, which is essentially the same price it would cost you just to sign up with any hosting service to begin with without any of those actual perks on top. So if you're ready to join in on the action and do more than just listen to us talk about your favorite team, then make your voice heard with the help of Blue Wire Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so make sure you get your application in today. 
to do so, go to bwhustle.com slash join. That's bwhustle.com slash join. Recognize employees with Custom Inc. Show customer appreciation with Custom Inc. Outfit your teams with Custom Inc. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at customink.com. Make Custom Inc. your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at customink.com. Champions aren't born, they're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme? Shopify the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Um, okay, so in, the, in terms of the return, um, do you want to talk about Boquist or Bean first? Because I think they're both really interesting sort of stylistically in terms of what they could provide to this Blue Jackets team. Yeah, let's go Bolquist just because that's the ret- the direct return. Okay. Um, so eighth, eighth overall pick in 2018, uh, a right shot defenseman. Um, it's it's tough to all the metrics are, are so all over the place because he played such a sheltered role in such limited minutes. I believe he was like the 12th most frequently used Blackhawks player at five on five, and like a bunch of forwards are playing more than him. Uh, so they're clearly like carefully manicuring his minutes and making sure that to ease him into the league. Now the offensive results are very encouraging. I believe he was the 88th percentile in terms of uh, even strength, offensive impacts. Uh, we, we funny enough, haven't really seen him produce on the power play yet, even though he profiles to be a, you know, an elite power play quarterback based on the skill set. And I think that's, what's so fascinating about this return for Columbus from me. It's like they got him. And if you add Jake Bean into it, two young defensemen with significant offensive upside that not only give the team a fresh start in terms of like turning back the timeline and, and, and giving them cheaper options that are younger that can grow with the team, uh, but also provide this, this offensive ability that, that could signal a change in terms of how we're going to look and th- how the Blue Jacks are going to look, how we're going to think about them in terms of the way they play coming from this era of being like this defensively stingy team that never really tried anything. And I think that that's interesting if, the, if that really is sort of the path they're going down and assuming I think they are because if you look at the way they approach the entry draft with their picks, they certainly went for as high upside offensively as they could have with a lot of their choices. 
absolutely. And I think, you know, it's interesting. It, it kind of got lost in these past few years. But John Tortorella, when he, Seth Jones came to Columbus and then Zach Rensky is draft, drafted that summer, John Tortorella is on record going all the way back to then that he wanted his offense to originate from the back end. He wanted more active, more aggressive defenders playing on the blue line. And when the team was at the quote unquote height of their powers with the addition of Artemi Panarin, I think that's when you really saw that. That's when you see Seth Jones have that warranted Norris contender year. So I agree. I I was curious because there's obviously been a change in head coaches. And so I was curious what systemically might change for this roster. And to your point, this signals to me, and I like it, that they're going to stay aggressive and offensively minded from the back end. And what I like too is that What's really more interesting, the wrinkles of it, is that in my opinion right now, and I'm obviously not the coach and I'm usually wrong, but Boquist I think is going to slot in in the second pair um, with Vladislav Gavrikov mm-hmm. because I, I don't think, you know, Zach Wierenski needs a very specific kind of partner. But I think that th- what's nice about this now is that the three pairs in Columbus before each kind of had a very specific identity, wrinkles on a theme. And I think there's more alignment across the three pairs potentially now, if if this turns out the way that I think the organization hopes. And to your point, I think it solidifies more concretely and with more true talent what they want that back end to look like and how they want this team to play. And so that, that I'm positive about. And I do on the power play side, Columbus's power play has been broken for like 18,000 years. Um, so I like just the change in personnel, first of all. And, and I do think I, I, I didn't love Seth Jones as the quarterback, didn't really love Zach Wierenski as the quarterback. So I, I really like that that specific skill set was brought in as well with Boquist. Yeah, I've got to write it down here. So in 2016-17, they were in the top half of the league. That was the magical Sam got fourth line. Sam, Sam got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I love that. I remember I wrote a big thing about it. Since then, this is uh, year by year since 2016-17, power play goals per 70, per, per 60, sorry. 27th, 25th, 28th, 28th. Oh, it's um, abysmal. It's so, bad. So... Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to changes there, certainly. Um, and, and I think Gabrikov, I think you hit the nail on the head there, is such a fascinating uh, compliment to, to Boquist's skill set. I mean, it's still so, he, he's still so, um, he's played less than 82 games total so far in his career for Boquist, but the, the, the playmaking, just all the, the, the micro stats I've seen from, from Corey Snyder in terms of his primary shot assists per 60, uh, the fact that he's drawn so many more penalties than he's taken so far in his young career. Uh, just the the point rate, if you look at it on a permanent basis compared to some of the other top uh, defensemen in the league, it's 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 very encouraging. I'm really curious to see, and I hope I hope we'll, we'll talk a bit more here in terms of like the the outlook for the team uh, for this coming season and sort of where the priorities will be and what it'll look like. But if anything, I just hope we get to see him in significantly more usage and and just see what he actually has to bring to the table because I, I think the upside is very immense with him. Hundred percent agree, absolutely. Um, Bean, Bean is a bit more interesting. I, I, you know, it was clear that he was going to get traded. I thought he was going to get selected in the expansion draft, um, and certainly on the, on the mocks they did. I guess on that note, what uh, do you have any intel on the Gavin Bayreuther situation in terms of what on earth happened with that pick? I mean, you know, open and honest, I think that's kind of an indictment of why Columbus has to do everything they're doing now. Is that the the options were were so unappealing? to Seattle that they went for a player that is on, can go on a two way that was cheap 
and and there just wasn't anything else worth really spending on. That's that's the best take I can get. <laughs> yeah, well, it seemed pretty clear. I, I, initially, it was like, oh, it's going to be Max Domi, and then it was quickly became obvious it wasn't. I, I heard a lot of smoke that it was going to be Dean Kukan. <laughs> And right. then uh, it didn't wind up being, and I understand that because th- there's such a wealth of defensemen to choose from. I understand not going that route, it, but, but for me, it's like, just take Kevin Stenland. I, I understand it's not the sexiest option, but 25 year old center, really cheap. You have his RFA rights. I, I, I just, yeah. When the game, Gavin Bayreuther pick game, I was like, Whoa, this, this is a, uh, there must be a trade here, right? And then well, it yeah, we, I was like, no, no, they willingly chose Gavin Bayruth. I was like, huh. we all assumed we're like, well, what's the deal? And there was yeah. like, no deal. We're like, what? <laughs> oh man. Um, okay. So yeah, with, with Dean, as I was saying, I think, you know, he produced big offensive numbers in the AHL. I'm not necessarily sure that's going to translate to the NHL level, but there were a lot of, a lot of things that I saw in terms of how he defended basically the opposite of what we just said about Seth Jones. And, and maybe it speaks to the environment he was in where he was unable to do so in Carolina, but he so aggressively defended the blue line and then was so good at quickly pivoting, turning around, going to retrieve the puck and break it out. And in terms of you're talking about that sort of modern uh, way they want to play or, or how you want to activate defensemen and go from defense to offense, Jake Bean seems like a perfect candidate for that. So for, for to turn around and use that 44th pick on him was, I, I thought, a stroke of genius in terms of just capitalizing on a, an available player that otherwise might not have been available to them. I 100% agree I, on pretty much everything. You know, it's I thought that that was the player. I mean, I swung for the fences a little bit and said, hey, if they could get Dougie in Seattle, why not go for it? They obviously didn't. But Bean was who I thought that would be the second choice there. Um, I like the player. I like the upside potential. And for all of the things we just talked about of how Seth Jones played with Zach Wierenski, this is where I think Bean is likely going to get the look as the partner with Zach to support that role, be aggressive defensively, be sound back there, but also initiate the rush, initiate the breakout. Um, Again, I just, everything that came out of that trade directly and indirectly for Seth Jones, I just, I mean, what, what a return, what a wealth of opportunity for Columbus with what they acquired. Yeah. Well, neither you or I are, are huge draft people. I usually defer to, to people who have spent all year watching these players play and actually giving thoughtful opinions to them. But it seems by all accounts that, that they knocked the, the draft picks out of the park. I, it, Ken Johnson at fifth. I was initially a bit wary just because when you hear of a player, oh, his one concern is, is maybe his skating. I was like, that's not ideal. But much smarter people than I in the know seem to not be concerned about it. They say that that his creativity and problem solving with the puck and playmaking is, is truly elite and and he'll overcome any of those skating deficiencies. Cole Sillinger, uh, arguably the best shot in the draft by it's all crazy. by uh, by top down hockey's projections. He has the second highest star potential in this draft. And so they got him with that 12th pick that they got in this trade. And then Stanislav Swozo at 69th was 18th on uh on elite prospects draft guide. And so um, I love, I love what they did with those picks. I love what it signals. And and I just love the, the idea that there's all of a sudden infusion of offensive talent into this organization. And so I think it's a no brainer, I guess, which brings us to the big question here. So for next year, do you think that maybe it might be by necessity, but is this organization positioned to be entrenched in the uh, Shane Wright Brad Lambert sweepstakes with the Buffalo Sabres and Arizona Coyotes who have certainly been making big moves themselves to position themselves nicely in that, or do you think it's going to be uh, 
a, a team that doesn't necessarily have an appetite to fully bottom out in that way are going to try to at least have something to show for next season, considering how ugly this past year was. Where do you feel they stand in terms of just the the outlook? Obviously, they're never going to say, yeah, we're going to suck next year intentionally. They may have no choice because of the personnel they have, but I'm really curious to see how they approach next season in that regard. Yeah. And, you know, my, my read on the situation is that, yes, I mean, everyone, and I do agree, I'm not a draft expert. Many, many people are smarter there than I, but people I trust and, and a lot of people are saying, you know, it's these next two years have some of the most elite talent in terms of draftability. And Columbus is an organization that needs to draft and develop. And they've never truly ripped everything down to the foundation, to the studs, and then built back up. And I think that that is what we're seeing here. If you look at this draft, the talent is high, high, high end, but not coming to the NHL, definitely not next year and maybe a little bit longer. And so if you look at this roster coming into the season, now they make the Cam Atkinson trade to get Jake Voracek to hopefully help out Patrick Line. Max Domi is out till December. You have you still have a lot of piece parts that I don't know combined for enough offense. So next season right now to me reads like it's going to be very focused on building that defense for all of those players we just talked through, finding that chemistry. They still have a decision to make on goaltending. It ends up they might keep these two guys again, which is going to be very interesting. But there's just not going to be the offense next year. And I don't think they want it. (laughs) Um, I think they do want to try and get as many high-end picks as they can the next two years and then shoot off like a rocket. And that's when their next window opens. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they're they're 28th in point percentage, 29th in goal differential, and 30th in expected goal share last year. So uh, you know, it's, it's all, all relative. I mean, I'm just curious because it's, it's very interesting how they're going to position themselves, but maybe it, it's a nice balance of they can, they can provide. Cause last year was just so uh, untenable in terms of just the optics mm-hmm. of, of everything. I think there's a nicer balance now to be found between like, Hey, we all these young players look at the upside and the future hope, and maybe even bring in some of these draft picks when their college seasons ends or whatever down the stretch and, and give people a glimpse into the future while also, not necessarily winning a lot of games. So you can kind of accomplish the best of both worlds, leave a better taste in the mouth for the fans while also uh, having a high draft pick at the end of the day. A hundred percent. And, you know, part of what, well, a lot of things made last year so difficult, but one of the many was the expectations. And as you said, now there is hope. And, you know, there's a difference when a fan base feels like there's a direction and a plan and they see the future coming versus when you feel like everything's just disintegrating around you Hmm. and there's no direction. And I think that's where how things felt at the end of last season that, you know, a a person who follows the team said to me, I've, I've never felt like a page was so blank before in my life in terms of what comes next. But now I think that... And, and, you know, the team just wasn't playing. They weren't, they didn't seem to be playing for each other. They didn't seem to be playing inspired hockey in any way. There was, this was a team that always had fight to it. And even that was gone this past year. But I do, I think that there will still be energy. Um, Elvis Merzlikens, tremendous personality and tremendously fun to watch, even <laughs> when he's losing. Um, I think there's going to be energy around the goaltending. I think there's going to be energy around these young defenders that will play. And I think there's going to be excitement for what comes next. And I think that the fan base can hold on to that. Um, and if Brad Larson, who's coming in as the new head coach, can really be teaching these players. And I think if fans and those following the team are seeing progress, even if it's smaller steps, but it's a continued progress, I think that's going to really change the appetite for, for the process that's going to take a couple seasons here in totality to get the team back to where they want to be.
Yeah. What do you, so what do you think of the, the Atkinson for Bortrick swap? Because obviously, I, I think in terms of the, the, the local community there and sort of how he's beloved as a player, it was a big loss. I think from what I gather from their perspective, it was like, well, the contract ends for Warchick one year earlier and they don't care about the higher cap hit because they're not going to be spending to the cap right now anyways. But I thought we'll see because his numbers have dipped over the past couple of years, but his playmaking and passing, I think, can uh, you mentioned it, maybe unlock Patrick Laine's shot a bit more. Certainly Emil Bebstrom has a great shot. Looking, looking forward to seeing passes to him. Maybe down the line, we just talked about Cole Sillinger. It's, it's possible he's receiving passes from Jake Warchick. I imagine part of the, getting that specific uh, skill set was also part of the reason why they made that trade. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, it's 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 kind of a shame, and it's it's kind of a, a, a disappointing series of events that it seems that the acquisition of Patrick Line is what drove this, and maybe in a vacuum is that you know, I mean, there's a lot to say in hindsight about last year, but because that player is here and isn't moving, you have to move out of Cam Atkinson. Um, which maybe isn't something that ideally the organization would have done if they didn't need to try and find a way to get something out of Patrick Line. Who thought we'd be saying that? Find a right. way to get something out of Patrick Line. Um, but yeah, so I think that that it was the assets that they knew they either had to retain or wanted to retain, Emil Bemstrom being one, as you said, Oliver Bjorkstrand potentially another, that needs a setup guy. And particularly with Gus Nyquist out last year, they didn't have that. Um, their center depth is young and not established yet by any means. So if they can get a distributor to come in and try and find something, um, that's what they had to do. And, you know, there is there's a little bit of a nice community narrative. Jake comes back home. This was a fan base that was very disappointed to see him leave when he did in the ill-fated Jeff Carter trade. Yep. But Cam will be a big loss, um, both on and off the ice. I, I enjoyed the heck out of covering him. And very few players, even from what I see in other organizations, come into a market, commit so fully. He lived here year-round, um, has invested in the community and also in building hockey in the community in very, very meaningful ways. So I, I see this as kind of an unfortunate decision that ended up having to be made and, and maybe a little bit of a sacrifice of a player that might otherwise be here. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you're mentioning Lina there and, and, and who would have figured I, uh, one of the most unintentionally comedic podcasts I've done is <laughs> me, yourself and Murat Atesh. Well, great. I, I had so much fun chatting for like 70 minutes with you guys. But we deep dive the heck out of that Dubois for line A swap. And then at the end, passing, <laughs> we're like, oh, yeah, Jack Roslovich was in this trade. And then just how, at least, especially like at the start, how it unfolded with Roslovich just making like ridiculous plays and highlight reels and scoring a ton and neither guy doing much for yeah. their new teams. It was like, yeah. wow. And so, so maybe it'll just become a running bit where at the end of every podcast, <laughs> we just mentioned Jack Roslovich in passing. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's, and again, I, I don't, I, I'm not laying blame at the foot of anyone. It's just this series of events. They're, they're, they're undoing their messes. They're up cleaning up their messes and then that's what it's going to take. And I think that's what John Davidson likes to do and, and has done in the past. And now he's got one more shot to see if he can do it the right way. Well, and I think that's a good note to end on here. I think the reason why, and this was obviously, I think people are listening to a, a very uh, generally optimistic take on the blue jacket situation, right? And it's, it's hard not to be just based on how things ended last year. And then now this kind of, well, really is a fresh start, both in terms of the personnel, but also uh, if you look at the financial flexibility, I believe Oliver Bjorkstrand is the only person that has a contract more than three years out on this team at the moment. And so there's a lot of, they're not tied down 
by anything unnecessary. They're they're not you know backed into a corner. They can really move forward with this. Now need to figure out what that team is going to look like, obviously, and that's a big hurdle. So I don't, I don't want people to come away from this thinking like, oh, Columbus is going to be great next year because that is certainly right. not the case. But considering where they're coming from, I do think this was an important weekend for them and their organization in terms of uh, kind of resetting the clock and giving themselves at least a fighting chance to to get back to where they were as recently as two years ago. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, again, this was a hard time for for fans of Columbus because not only, as I mentioned, were perceptions completely missed, not just slightly, but completely missed, but also there were a lot of hard truths to look around the league. You know, the first round draft picks pretty much all gone except for Zach Wierenski in terms of guys who are in the, in the NHL right now, playing elsewhere, Alexander Wenberg's in Florida, Pierre-Luc Dubois in, in Winnipeg, you know, Sonny Milano's barely even playing, but he's not with the organization either. There, there wasn't much to hang on to think that things were going to get better. And so it looked a bit murky. And I agree. I think this was a tremendously important weekend for this organization and personally, they impressed the heck out of me. I, I thought they did a tremendous job, both with nearer term deals, these trades, talent, current talent acquisition. And then as you already outlined what they did in the draft, I think it would have been very hard for them to have much more success when we look at the realities of how this league operates. Um, and and that knowing that this is how the process is going to go. And, and I must give a shout out, shout out to the computer boys yes. from Florida who, who yep. joined this, this front office, um, Josh and Cam. I have to believe that their contributions were heard, valued, and, and a part of this and full credit to them and to the organization for bringing that into the fold. I think the, the ripples and the tendrils of that show in these decisions. And that's exciting. Yeah. You certainly saw with the home run swings they took in the draft. I, I no doubt about it. Um, all right, Allison, well, this was great. I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. I think we, we covered uh, as much as we could in the short time that we chatted. Um, plug some stuff. I know you, you've been writing some stuff about the Kraken recently. Tell us about yeah. that. Tell us about where people can check you out and what you're working on these days. Yeah, so I'm I'm a little bit everywhere. I'm fortunate to be doing some work with the Seattle Kraken as a contributor. So that's awesome. Um, you can always see everywhere I am writing by following me on Twitter at Allison L. And it's all right there if you want to check it out. Awesome. Well, this was a blast. I'm glad we got the chat and we'll certainly have you back on sometime down the road. Thank you so much, my friend. Take care. So in between the time we finished recording with Allison and getting the podcast ready for your listening consumption, Marc-Andre Fleury was traded to the Chicago Blackhawks, as I'm sure you saw on Twitter. And since we talked about them quite a bit in the show in relation to Seth Jones and their outlook for next season and beyond, I figured I'd do some bite-sized analysis of that trade here, uh, at least based on initial impressions. So with all due respect to Alex Nedeljkovic going to Detroit, this move really marks the first big domino to fall in what we expect to be a busy offseason for goalie switching teams. Now, it's certainly not every day that you see a reigning Vesna Trophy winner get moved for, for literally nothing other than, I guess, cap space like we did here. But there's so many layers to unpack in this trade. So let's work our way quickly through each of them for all of the parties involved. So first on Marc-Andre Fleury, kudos to him for working his way back from a miserable year uh, two years ago where he had a 904 save percentage, a minus 14 goal save above expected. He lost his job to Robin Leonard and he most notably suffered a devastating sword wound at the hands of his own coach. Uh, this past year, he had a 927 save percentage, a plus 19 goal save above expected, six shutouts in 36 games, 
and was the deserving Vesna, Vesna winner. Um, it's a testament to to what an athlete and competitor he is that he did so at age 36, considering all the miles he's got in his body at when I think it could have been really easy to just write him off and, and feel like it was the end of the road for him based on how it had gone previous to that. But, um, you know, it is also uh, the fact that he played so well, it kind of makes it um, ironic and, and cruel in a way because this trade was essentially made possible by the fact that he played as well as he did last year. Uh, just 10 months ago, it was reported that Vegas was essentially offering uh, anyone that would take the full freight of his contract uh, as, as good as a second round pick to do so. And pretty much need, no teams were interested in doing so unless Vegas retained at least part of the salary and, and that didn't make sense for them. So they essentially kind of had to keep him just because they had no other options. So, um, We'll see whether he goes to Chicago, actually, and, and winds up playing for them. It sounds like he was pretty blindsided by this. And if the reports are true that he had found out through Twitter and that the, there was no real communication there, he was kind of forced into this, then it really sucks. And uh, and I hope, um, you know, selfishly that this isn't it for him because he's really fun to watch. He's right up there as the most entertaining goalies in, in the league. And he's so easy to root for and by all accounts is a great individual. So... Hopefully we still see him playing in the NHL, whether it is in Chicago or somewhere else. But let's just for now work under the assumption that he does play next year for Chicago because I do think it's a it's a pretty interesting deal for them. Uh, last year, they gave up the most shots, the second most high danger attempts, and the second most expected goals against. And, you know, all you heard in the show, I, I doubt that changes much, even with the addition of Seth Jones this coming season. So they concede so much off the rush. Uh, they have so many... Uh, defensive breakdowns and coverage and when you're a team that plays like that you need a goalie to to bail you out if you want to be competitive and I think even at his age right now there's few goalies equipped to to play better in that type of environment than Flurry with his uh, acrobatic style and his penchant for for highlight reel saves so at least uh, it would give them a fighting chance and I do think I do think they want to be competitive because they have this one-year window here before Seth Jones's uh, mega extension kicks in and complicates things even further. And they don't even have their first this coming season. It's top two protected. And I imagine they would want to be as competitive as, as possible and they're incentivized to to do so because you're not going to have that pick anyways. And so it may as well be as good as you can and not wind up having egg on your face, giving away the fourth or fifth overall pick. So um, it's... And in terms of if Flurry decides uh, he actually does want to retire and doesn't play for them, then I guess it, it doesn't cost them anything and they're kind of back to where they started. So it's a pretty minimal uh, risk move in, in that regard. Although you could argue that if that is the case, then they just essentially inexplicably helped a West team out of a corner for no reason. They cleared $7 million in cap space for them that they desperately needed. And I imagine there's going to be quite a few teams out there that are going to be pretty livid that they essentially enabled that and, and let Vegas off the hook. But um, which brings us to Vegas's angle here, because if they are keeping Alec Martinez at the roughly $5 million or so per year that's been reported, uh, that means they've got roughly $50 million tied up in five forwards and three defensemen. And that doesn't include Jonathan Marchessault, so Riley Smith, Braden McNabb, or a bunch of others. And so at that point, if you're trying to construct a team, you really can't justify spending $12 million combined on the goalie position. It's just a luxury that, that you can't really afford anymore. And so if there is a team that, that can be uh, subtracting Marc-Andre Fleury and without adding anything in return and being fine, it is them. They've got Robin Leonard at $5 million per for the next four years. He only just turned 30. 
And I think he's a really good bet to be in Vesna consideration himself this coming year. Um, and with the cap room they did clear, I think the attention is going to immediately turn to to the big move that they're orchestrating next. Uh, they're always up to something, it feels like. And I can only presume that means getting involved in the Jack Eichel trade talks. They were already heavily linked to it even before this when it didn't seem possible that they could make the finances work. And now that path becomes certainly more attainable. They're still going to have to maneuver quite a bit, but at least uh, you know the first important steps towards that have, uh, have taken place here. And so, you know, it's... Uh, it makes sense because it's what they do. They do this every offseason. They're always involved in the biggest names available. And theoretically, it does address their, their biggest lineup hole. You know, they've added pretty much everywhere else. They added Alex Petrangelo in free agency as a top defenseman. They went out and traded for Mark Stone and Max Petrady as wingers. The top flight center is something that has always, uh, so far over the past couple of years, eluded them. And it's the one big piece they haven't been able to add yet. And, and Eichel, presuming health, is uh, about as big of a piece down the middle as you can add. So that would be incredibly interesting, especially if you know, they can get him for some sort of package of futures, which they obviously don't really seem to care too much about. Uh, with Alex Tuck being really the only major contributor off their present day roster being moved to to help make that trade happen. So, um, you know, it also provides them with the option of if they do acquire Eichel, they can let him have his desired surgery. They can let him spend the full season on LTIR, bring him back for the playoffs and can really afford to do so considering that, um, their division is so weak that I think even without Jack Eichel and Alex Stock and whatever else they gave up in that trade or, or, or had to move on from to make the finances work, I think they'd still be fine and still be atop the Pacific. So it it the trickle-down effect of this is really fascinating, and there's obviously going to be a lot to watch for here moving forward, but I do think this is kind of the, the first piece in a number of moves that Vegas is, is um, really interested in doing, especially after how disappointingly uh, their last... Uh, appearance ended which was losing to to montreal um so anyways we'll see what they do but uh but yeah a reminder that they are uh you know they're always they're capable of everything they're always up to stuff and no one on the team is safe and that can be a both a blessing and a curse but for our purposes here in terms of content and analysis it is always entertaining um all right i think that's gonna be it and that's gonna be it for today's episode of the hockey pdo cast thanks for listening as always hopefully you enjoy the show uh, and you've been enjoying the ones we've been churning out recently. Um, over the past couple of days alone, we did a off-season primer for goalie movement with Kevin Woodley. We did trade deep dives with Harmon Dial and Charlie O'Connor, and this one that you just listened to with Allison Lucan. So if you have enjoyed them, please take a minute to to leave the PDOcast a rating and review. Smash that five-star button. If you're feeling extra good about it, um, you can let us know what you enjoy about the show, why you recommend people check it out. All of those are really greatly appreciated. A ton of you have done so already, and so... Thank you to each of you that have done so. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, keep checking this feed. There will be more off-season content coming here before the, before we really get into vacation mode with some of the free uh, agent signings we'll see over the next couple of days, and we're going to do analysis on that. So we have that to look forward to. And um, until then... Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.